Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 709, with field failing. Like standardization, operations, cleanliness, systems, manufactured, like that's all of manufacturing and operational excellence. So if you want to scale a restaurant, you have to be really good at those things. And and most independent restaurateurs and the ones I worked for previously we're not great at those things. You know, you're highly reliant on a handful of people that are your like sort of trusted lieutenants to make sure the restaurant's clean and everything else. But if none of them would have been that successful at opening a bunch of restaurants and replicating those kinds of standards. So you need the, the operational excellence, the systems to be able to do that well. And it's really hard seeing the way that like a, a, a drug manufacturing facility operates, which is like a level of excellence that's really kind of second to none, is a good standard for restaurants, like or a good like aspirational standard are you ready for it factors success stories failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge then join eric cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable Don Professional, it does more than just save greasy oil slick and ducks. It also happens to be the number one dish detergent found in almost every commercial kitchen with long lasting suds that clean 58% more dishes per sink. To learn more, go to www.pgpro.com and experience the grease fighting power of Don Professional dishwashing liquid. You can find Don Professional at Sam's Club or by visiting samsclub.com slash Don Professional. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. What's going on? Unstoppable. So we are back to work as we knew it. Uh, for me, at least, I know you guys still have a little bit of a runway ahead of you before we were able to get back to things uh, as you know it, but I figured the best way I could serve you guys right now uh, is by being a source of inspiration and getting after that knowledge, that wisdom that can help you come back even stronger than before. So uh, we had a good run with the Corona Chronicles. I feel like the industry is stabilizing now. I don't feel like there's much breaking news out there and there's really not much changing. Uh, when we do have new information, I'll do my best to kind of keep you guys um, you know, aware of what's going on out there when it comes across our radar. But right now, I just feel like we all kind of want a sense of normalcy when we want to get back to, to business as we know it. And uh, I think we can help transition you to getting back to that by bringing back this core content. So today we have Field Failing joining us. Field is the founder uh, chef of Field's Good Chicken. Uh, and we covered a lot today. It was a really good conversation. We talked about the significance of excellence, what that looks like. He tells us uh, about his experience as a manufacturer and uh, working within manufacturing and how manufacturing has helped serve him in his career as a restaurateur. The importance of paying attention to trends within your business is something we talk about. Uh, he says that if you see smoke, there's a fire burning below. So 
I mean, that kind of paints a picture for you. The message is clear. If you see something going wrong, you know, pull back some layers. There's usually something that is causing that smoke. So figure out what's causing the smoke. We talk about working on your elevator pitch. We also discuss how to prevent drifting from your vision. Uh, being comfortable with letting your brand evolve organically is another conversation that happens today. We lastly, before going to the speed round, talk about how focusing on doing good for others really is like the best thing you can do right now for your team. Your team needs purpose right now. So if you make your purpose, just serving to exist others, serving to be of value to your community, that that alone will, might be the purpose we need to get through uh, this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so just focus on being the purpose your team needs. Focus on creating that purpose for them. Uh, you know, micro purposes right now. What can we do to be of value to our community? Um, that purpose is more valuable now than ever before. So great stuff comes out of today's conversation. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest field failing field. Are you feeling unstoppable today? Can't stop, won't stop. Yes, I love it. That's what I like to say. So Field Failing is a graduate of Cornell University, where he earned both his BA and his MBA. After working in finance and failing to become a professional cyclist, it was time to return to his passion of cooking. Uh, He filled the fridge in his New York apartment with brines and marinades and set out to make the perfect chicken. By 2012, he was confident enough in what he had to open Field's Good Chicken. Eight years later, Field's Good Chicken has to six locations throughout New York City, um, and I cannot wait to dive into your story and to find out how you got to where you are today, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? All right, so my favorite quote, and I swear I did not uh, I did not pick this for this this podcast. This has been something that I used oh, my please, team. Please tell me the word unstoppable is in there. The uh, word unstoppable <laughs> yes. is in it. Uh, it was like, oh, yes. So my favorite quote by far is talent without grit is just potential talent plus grit is unstoppable. Yes. I love it. Why, why do you, why does that quote resonate with you so much? Because you have to be so gritty to be successful in the restaurant business and it, and in life. Uh, and I'm an athlete and it translates perfectly to that. So the quotes from Ben Bergeron, who's a, like one of the world's kind of preeminent CrossFit coaches. And he wrote a book called chasing excellence, which is like, one of the most motivational books I've ever read. Yeah. Um, the guy's a total badass. And so that that's, yeah, I love it. So before we get into your story, let's break down grit a little bit more. What is grit to you and where, where do you go? Like, how do you get it? How do you access, how do you access it from within? Uh, to me, it's that kind of just resilience and persistence in the face of adversity. That is, that can be the difference between success or failure. So I think that's exactly what he's talking about. He says talent, without grit is just potential, right? Like that's your potential to succeed. So if I like, if I back up for a minute, so there's actually like an excerpt that this comes from the full excerpt is there's nothing fun about waking up and doing things that you're bad at over and over again. It takes an extraordinary amount of grit to commit yourself to that brand of torture. Given this, it's no surprise that the average person doesn't aspire to grit. They aspire to talent. In our society, we reward talent above all else, even though talent isn't what wins in the long run to when you have to be talented. Yes. But talent without grit is just potential. Talent plus grit is unstoppable. Yes, dude. So, um, so when when you are up against it, when there is a notice that goes out saying you have to close all of your dining rooms, where do you go? Like, well, how do you reach inside and find that grit? What's that inner dialogue look like? Uh, I mean, you're tapping into one of the probably was one of the hardest days of yeah. my entire career uh, trying to trying to navigate this. Um, 
and trying to look at it at the positives in it. Um, I think, you know, when, when we are faced with something that we're like we're faced with right now with COVID, like, you know, it can go really one of two ways. Either we can make the most of it and look at the, the silver linings wherever we can find them, or we can let it run us down uh, and control us. So like when it comes to closing dining rooms, it was, you know, okay, like one step at a time, we have to do what's right for our people. And then we will take a step back and figure out how to make this a positive instead of a negative. Mm, awesome stuff, man. Um, so thank you for getting into that straight out of the gates. We're, we're putting you under the, the broiler here. You're doing a great job. So take us to where it makes sense to start telling your story. Um, you were a professional cyclist. Uh, I saw that you were also uh, in the world of finance for a while while also cooking in, I'm assuming, skiing. <laughs> yes. Considering where you were. Yeah, it all the fits time. together in yeah. this kind of crazy story that yeah. uh, I think had my parents very worried for a long time. <laughs> Uh, so I actually never made it to be a professional cyclist. That was actually kind of where my path diverged was I, so I raced in college. Um, and then after college, I was working for a biotech company out in California and I was racing very seriously out there and decided I would try and race full time to try and race professionally and learn pretty quickly that I wasn't good enough to go pro. So that was sort of hard lesson. Number one, quit my job, found out in a hurry that this was not in the cards, uh, so I needed a job, right? <laughs> needed to pay the bills if I was going to even try and do this. And I, I loved, uh, loved cooking um, and had gotten into healthy eating through the whole bike racing thing. And so I ended up going to work for a restaurant at night, figuring I could train during the day uh, and make ends meet and then learned pretty damn quickly that that's not possible either. I was working like 15-hour days on my feet in a kitchen. Um, but I loved it. So that was really where this all started. So where did your uh, passion for food originally evolve? Was this something that kind of blossomed before your competitive career or maybe in high school? Or when did you know that you had that passion for food? I think it started around the time that I got really into cycling. So what got me into it was in college. I, I had gotten super out of shape okay, and was not taking care of myself. I was partying way too hard, eating really badly, drinking a lot and I started riding a bike actually just to get back in shape. It wasn't to race. It was like, well, I got to start taking care of myself, both mentally and physically. And so healthy eating was actually like, all right, I'm going to start eating healthy to try and lose some weight. And uh, I was also in college. I was a chemistry major. And I think that while I was majoring in chemistry, I loved chem lab and I hated the classroom experience. And so it was like, I'm never going to go do a PhD or a master's because yeah. I, I won't make it. Yeah. Uh, but I liked working with my hands in front of a lab bench and then cooking was very similar to that. Yeah. And, and so I think chemistry. that sparked my passion. Yeah. I mean, cooking is chemistry. So, I mean, it, it yeah. is, I'm sure there's a lot of cross utilization there. Um, so when did you first, were you working in kitchens throughout high school or when, when was your first experience working in a restaurant? No, it wasn't until after, after college. Um, growing up, I had a bunch of friends that, that were a few years older than me that worked in local restaurants. And I would like kind of pop into the back door of the restaurants I worked in all the time and get kicked out by the shelf. Like, <laughs> chef, you know, like who are you? Why are you here? Yeah. I think maybe in the back of my mind, I always thought it was kind of cool, like the behind the scenes of a restaurant. Yeah. But I didn't actually start working at a restaurant until after, after college. Okay. Um, in that first restaurant that was that, um, 2006 or is it 2000? Was that the Nantucket restaurant or were you? Yeah. April. Yeah. That was like Oh, Oh six, Oh five, Oh six, I guess. Yeah. Um, why this restaurant? Was it, was it just a, a summer job? Like what, what brought you to this place in particular? 
It was honestly, it was, it was someone that, someone that I knew that owned it and having no experience cooking whatsoever. It was like, you know, I didn't know if I could, at the time, I didn't know I could just walk in the door and get a job cooking. So, uh, I just went to someone I knew. Okay. Um, and it kind of started there. Was the intent to learn about the restaurant industry or was the the intent just to get a paycheck at the time? At the time it was to get a paycheck and it was, you know, I, I, I liked cooking. Uh, let's explore something. <laughs> so was, this is very much like a transitional experiential phase in my life, which is why I said earlier, like, I think my parents were a little concerned here. You know, I, I had a, a good job working in finance at a, at a fortune 500 biotech company. And suddenly I'm trying to race bikes professionally and, you know, working in a kitchen cause I like cooking. So I think, <laughs> so this is Am- the, the, um, the fortune 500 company you're talking about is Amgen. Yes. Okay. So at Amgen, what are you doing there? Um, are you learning about finance or like, what was your job? So I was at the time I was doing what was called partnership finance. So really all things like modeling and analysis for uh, drug partnerships that the company had with other drug companies. Okay. Um, did you learn anything? Do you think during that time in the world of finance and the world of partnerships that serves you to this day? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I, I learned a, a couple really valuable things. One, like how to use Excel and how to actually, you know, build a financial model, which I use all the time running restaurants today. Um, I learned like how big companies should run well, which I think is really important. Running a small company now, I sort of know what the end goal should look like. I think the the, uh, the, the trick they say is to treat your small company like a big company to put the framework yeah. there, right? So I think seeing the inside of that like big corporate environment is really important and actually something I would like advise everyone to do at some point, even if they're like hell bent on being an entrepreneur. So you're and on, then sorry, go ahead. The the last thing was I I was working at that company super inspired by the mission to help people. They, you know, they the drugs they made were for cancer patients and other serious indications. And what they weren't making, you know, like over the counter stuff. This was like really serious. Stuff and I think they like you show up to work every day feeling really motivated by being a part of something and I've I've definitely taken that to restaurants and in our first core value is make a positive impact you know, how how can we sort of do the same thing through food mm. so what was going on at this time when you're working at this job um, you leave your full time job to go work in restaurants what did that that conversation internally look like what was going through your mind your heart. I think I was probably following my heart more than my mind at the time because the rational well, thing to you? do would have been the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, at this point in your life, I'm assuming you're what, like 25, 24? I was, I think I was probably 23, 24. 20, okay. Yeah. 20, maybe 24. Yeah. I mean, the frontal lobe and then the male doesn't fully evolve until or develop until what, like you're 27 or 28. So um, that makes sense. I guess. Yeah. It makes <laughs> sense that you're following your heart, right? Um, yeah. So you leave. Um, this, this world of finance and, um, uh, medicine to pursue the restaurant industry. Um, was there, you knew this person in Nantucket, you had a connection. Was there any other reason why you chose this restaurant? Not that I remember, honestly, I think it was a quick, like I needed a job really quickly at the time. Cause I just sort of hastily left my other job without really thinking, uh, so it was honestly, I think a quick, like, all right, let's go. What was the reason for the haste? Let's was there, it. is there a story behind this or was it just you kind of making a split decision? I think it was kind of making a split decision, honestly, in hindsight, you know, I think <laughs> I could have rationed my, my way through it at the time, but like, you know, 15, 20 years 
looking backwards, I think I was just being young and, and, uh, hasty. <laughs> yeah. So you get into this restaurant. Um, was it what you expected? Take us through the first couple of days. Like what was, was your world shook or did you kind of pick it up? Pretty it soon? was, it was my world was shook, but like in the best way possible, it was not what I had expected, but also in the best way what possible. Did you expect? I, I remember my first like three days on the job and it was like, crazy in the way like it had the same kind of like adrenaline rush that like i would get in a bike race and yeah. i was like this is so freaking cool this is so much more fun than working in it in a big office building what were you expecting i'm curious uh i don't know i mean i think i was just working like expecting to stand there and and you know chop food with a knife and go home but what i was not expecting was the like intensity and the camaraderie and the just job. the like chaos <laughs> yeah. that yeah. happens in the kitchen yeah so Reflecting back on the time, what was the biggest impression it made on you? What, 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 I mean, if you weren't already completely in love, how did this make you really fall in love? What parts of the aspect really sucked you in? I mean, I think literally on day one, I was like, wow, that you, you can, you could love your job. Mm. What was it specifically this is, this that you work and it's fun. Was, was it the people that love their job or were you starting to love your job at this time? No, I was starting to love my job. I well, think there's some people around me that hated their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of added to the, the chaos of it. You know, there was a, uh, like right behind me, behind my station, there was this disgruntled sous chef that was just like super pissed all the time. It would turn to me and like kind of mutter like curses under his breath or like give me a hard time for no reason. And, but like I kind of just laughed it off. Yeah. Any key lessons at this first restaurant? I mean, you're here for two years. I know uh, it looks like you, you started in April of 2006, uh, probably worked through the summer, took time off to go ski uh, in Colorado, it looks like 2006, November, you're at Golden Eagle Inn. Is that the mm-hmm. next job you had? Yeah. So what I learned pretty quickly here is that there was this like seasonal rotation of people. So you go work at a restaurant in Nantucket, it closes in like November, uh, you know, October, November, and then reopens in the spring. And so the people that work there, most of them migrate out West. And there's this whole like subculture of people that work summer location, winter location in the service industry. Uh, and I was a big skier at the time. And so that was like a pretty easy sell when a bunch of my friends were going out to Colorado to work at a restaurant. I was like, hell yeah, you know, this is, I can, I can learn more about cooking. I can go to, to another restaurant and see how things are done there, work for another chef and ski every day. So, yep. so that's what I did. Yeah. So during this time, any key mentors, any one individual that stands out to you that you think had a huge influence in the, the chef you are today, the restaurant tour you are today? Yeah. I mean, there's been a number over the years. So right away, um, the chef at that first restaurant that I worked, worked at Jean-Luc Maticat, uh, became well, I think one of my, not just one of my really close friends and will always be, I think one of my closest friends, no matter how much time I spent apart from him, just because we, we went to battle together for three years at that restaurant. Um, but he really kind of tuned me into like obsessing over ingredients like he would get so excited when he would see like a fresh piece of produce or something that it, it was really kind of infectious. Um, and then when I, the second year I was out in Colorado, I worked for uh, a chef named Kelly Lycan at a really high end restaurant out there um, in Vail. And I think from her, I learned excellence, like just really obsessing over the excellence of a product and the service and everything else. Um, and then I could go to, down the line here um if you want me to let's uh let's let's dissect this a little bit so um from jean-luc you learned uh, the importance of ingredients specifically what values did he instill within you um 
so his his style was very much focused on like letting the ingredients speak. So it was a Spanish restaurant. That's very that's very kind of Spanish. Is like great ingredients, unique ingredients. Let the ingredients come to the front of the plate. Um, so I think I just I learned that great ingredients make great food, and that's something that I've taken with me to this day. Yeah, what I love about that mentality of great ingredients makes great food is that to get great ingredients, it forces us to be very mindful about how not just how we're sourcing, but how we're growing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think like it, this, this move for better ingredients, quality over quantity is forcing us to break a lot of bad habits within society, uh, fragmenting the food system, for example. Right. Um, do you want to reflect on that? Does that kind of get you jazzed up or I don't want to put words into your mouth or ideas into your mouth, but Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I totally agree. And it's something that like, you know, today we still, we obsess over constantly. I like every time it comes to changing an ingredient, it's something that like really hits me hard and is always a very, it's a hard thing for me to let go of as the business grows, to be honest. Yeah. And one thing I noticed, like even just not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but looking at your website, um, you put a lot of emphasis on ingredients, not just the ingredients of the food, um, but also the ingredients of your packaging like decomposable packaging, like things like that. Like you put a lot of thought into ethics in your business and that's very clear. You put it front and center. Yep. Um, so is it worth staying here longer? Is there anything else we can, we can pull from Jean-Luc or should we move over to Kelly? Uh, what do we move over? All right. Sounds good. So you said Kelly taught you about excellence. What's, what does excellence look like? Um, I mean, she was just like really obsessed with, perfection on every plate and every shift and she would be super psyched when something looked spot on and she would lose her mind when things went off the rails uh and so i mean i think a lot of restaurateurs a lot of chefs are like that but just to work in an environment where someone is just driving towards uh unbelievably delicious food beautiful plates uh and is obsessed with it is really is inspiring. But when I hear you say that she would get, she would get super psyched when things look spot on. I can't help but think of this mentality that um, we have to paint that picture of perfection. We also have to reinforce good behavior. So when something's being done right, like we need to reward that with positive reactions, right? Like, yes. And um, she also would correct negative reactions too. Was she kind of a, a jerk about it or was she kind of forgiving or like, what what was how would she keep that balance? I guess I'm curious about that. Uh, no, she, fun, I mean she funny was, looking she was forgiving, too, but, so. you, but you but you knew it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, she was all. I mean, you could. See, she was hard on herself, honestly. I mm. mean, you could just see like her reaction and and have a hard time not uh, letting that rub off on you. But yeah, she didn't let anything slip. Then when she got hard on herself, what? What did that make you feel internally when you saw that she was being hard on herself? How did you feel internally? I mean, it makes you feel like you're letting that person down, right? Like I think every cook can probably relate to that at some point in their career where like the chef in the kitchen is the person that like you're all working for, right? And their name's on the menu. They're the person you aspire to be someday. That's why you're killing yourself in their kitchen today. 
So if you let them down, I think that it's like letting your parents down, you know, like you, you, like, if you feel like they're disappointed, it kind of like hits your, your soul a little bit. Yeah. And I think she's also um, setting that tone, that, that level of give a fuck. Right. And when, when she sets that tone of like, even when I make mistakes, like I'm disappointed in in myself, I'm not necessarily disappointed in everybody else, but like I hold myself to that same standard. What does that, what, what impact does that have on an operation? I mean, that's leading by example, right? Mm-hmm. Like the leader gives a fuck. Everyone does mm-hmm. presumably, right. Mm-hmm. Or much more so that it has to start there. You know? Yeah. So what else did uh, Kelly teach you? Um, I learned a lot about just about cooking from her. Literally just like the basics of, of cooking. I worked on a French top, which was like the coolest station ever, you know, with cast iron pans and I was cooking fish and, you get a full French shop going and it's like juggling, you know, it's such a cool, like fluid experience. So that was, was awesome. And, and, you know, she taught me how to do that. What was her, her, her teaching style? What did you learn about teaching from her? On the one hand, I think she was pretty patient at showing you exactly what she wanted, but she, she would also get frustrated if you didn't. Then she wasn't necessarily rep- forgiving. Replicate though. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Um, Standards. Though. And she also had a pretty strong army of, of CDCs and Sue's, you know, underneath her that were pretty freaking tough. So uh, if she wasn't delivering the message, someone else was. So I think that's a, an embedded lesson clear. right there too. You <laughs> have to recreate yourself in your closest, uh, not, I don't know how to say this, but your, your highest ranked, if you will, and, I don't really like to use hierarchy, but the idea is the people that are closest to you, you have to recreate yourself in them, your standards, your expectations in them. So they can then carry that culture and echo it throughout the rest of the, the, the restaurant and your business. Cause you can't be everywhere, you know, but you can recreate right. yourself in others. Um, so it seems like that's comes out in this story. Um, who else had an influence on you? Any, any other stops along your journey that's worth making before we start talking about your own personal journey to open your own restaurant? Sure. So as we, as we progressed, the next, I think big one was, uh, was Steve Sharon, who was the CFO of David Burke restaurants. And so I, I went back to Cornell for business school and then, uh, I did my MBA internship at David Burke and worked for Steve. Um, and he is, he was just, he's a great guy, like super hardworking and, and super knowledgeable in all facets of, of the business. He was a CFO, but might as well have been COO, CFO at the same time. Um, and so he actually ended up kind of mentoring me through the creation of Fields Good Chicken. When I had the idea to start, I went back to him and, and like batted a lot of the business plan ideas off of him in the early stage. Like, what would it take to get something like this off the ground? What are the right financial assumptions? What are the pitfalls? What are, you know, what should this look like? And he was a kind of one of those people that I just checked in with over the years and still do. Yeah. It's, it cannot be overemphasized the significance of a mentor to have somebody to coach you, to lead you. Um, was it Steven Burke or David Burke? I'm sorry. Uh, it was at David Burke restaurant. So his name was, it was Steve Sharon. So okay. he was, so chef David Burke owns a you know bunch of restaurants in New York or did at the time. Uh, and Steve Sharon was his CFO. Gotcha. Gotcha. So at this point, when you went back to school for your MBA, um, were you on the trajectory to open your own restaurant? Was this part of the plan or were you, were you still trying to figure it out at this point? I was still trying to figure it out a little bit at this point. I think there was one sort of hitch in my path or another turning point here where 
I was, I was cooking. Um, I was, I knew that I wanted to open and, and own and run a restaurant someday that I didn't want to be a chef working for someone else. And it was, I think at the time I was having the realization, it was like the summer of 2008 and the entire world was coming unglued and the whole right. financial collapse. And so I was looking to get a job outside of restaurants and go work for a hospitality company to learn the business side of things. And like, I couldn't get a bite to save my life. You know, like not, not a, I don't think I had a single person answered any of the job applications I've filled out. And so it's kind of like, you know, what, what am I going to do? So at the same time, a job opening actually came back up at Amgen where I'd worked before for, uh, through someone I'd worked for previously. And um, I made a decision to go back to do that, to, to then try to go to business school to sort of set myself up and learn the business side some way else. Uh, and it was actually sort of a great step in my evolution, sort of another sidestep, but I learned a lot more about the finance and business side that I needed. And it was very reinforcing that like restaurants is, were where I was meant to be. Yeah. And I'm curious, I mean, you're at Cornell, dude, like the leading school for hospitality in the nation, a business, hospitality management, uh, hotel management, right? Why, uh-huh. why didn't you get, like, why didn't you go down that <laughs> path? Uh, I have to ask that question. It's a good question. Uh, I mean, in hindsight, again, yeah, that probably would have been the smart thing to do in some ways. Although, I can tell you the reason why I didn't is I was, I wanted to get the general MBA because I was looking for the skill set that I needed to really run a business holistically. Yeah. Um, and so what, what's actually, what's great about Cornell is you can, you, there's a lot of crossover between the business school and the hotel school. So like second year of my MBA, I took all of my electives in the hotel school. Okay. So I was able to get that general business understanding. And still tap into those. Elsewhere. What were the biggest lessons you learned during this time? You said that it set you up for success. That you know, kind of rounded off your your, your your knowledge. What were the things that you didn't have that that experience gave you? <clears throat> so, I guess a couple things. And to back up for a minute, so when I went back to Amgen, one of the really cool things about doing that was I went to work at a manufacturing plant in operations finance in manufacturing, which. Um, turns out there are tons of parallels to restaurants. I mean, I look at restaurants as like, particularly like fast, casual, multi-unit operations like ours as like mini manufacturing plants. So that was sort of like step one as I was, I went back to work for that company. It was a reminder of where I needed to be in life and that was restaurants, but it was also like a great learning experience and how to manage a, like a manufacturing operation. So what key, so then I, what key things how does a manufacturer look at things different from say a restaurant tour? How is this giving you that unique perspective? So I think like standardization, like operations, cleanliness systems, manufactured, like that's all of manufacturing and operational excellence. So if you want to scale a restaurant, you have to be really good at those things. And, and most independent restaurant tours and the ones I worked for previously were not great at those things. You know, you're highly reliant on, on a handful of people that are your like sort of trusted lieutenants to make sure the restaurant's clean and everything else. But if none of them would have been that successful at opening a bunch of restaurants and replicating those kinds of standards. So you need the, the, like the operational excellence, the systems to be able to do that well. And it's really hard. So I think that was, you know, seeing the way that like a, a, a drug manufacturing facility operates, which is like a level of excellence. That's really kind of second to none. Uh, it, is a good standard for restaurants, like or a good like aspirational 
standard. Yeah, and I had you kind of uh, dive into the the, the the things you gained from that um, manufacturing perspective. And I think you were starting to say something else, and I might have cut you short. Can you pick up a train of thought? Yeah, so so I guess I was just following my progression, which is that, and then go and then business school at Cornell. And what I what I learned there was, I think at that point I knew sort of getting in the door there. I wanted to open a restaurant company. I love restaurants. It's where I belonged. Um, as, as all my classmates were taking like investment banking internships and everything else in the summer, I was kind of the one guy that took it to the very end when uh, I should have had an internship and I didn't, and then went to work for this small, you know, fine dining restaurant operation in New York city with uh, David Burke. And uh, it really like deviated from the path you're kind of supposed to be on as, as a, as a business school student. But uh, that was, I think, a really big turning point again, or in my in my career. And what what year was it? Okay, um, the Burke Group, two thousand eleven to two thousand eleven. So you were there for three months. Yes, that was the like summer the summer internship while I was in business school. Okay, got you. And you said that during this time, Stephen Sharon was like a key mentor. Like, what were the things thinking about the influence he had on you? What were the lessons he taught you? Um, he was a a great, like operations minded CFO and was able to like reconcile the dollars and the business management with like actually being in the restaurants and understanding the front lines. So the guy like was in the restaurants all the time and knew all the chefs, all the general managers really well. Uh, and that's kind of actually kind of unusual, I think for the CFO of a restaurant company that's got seven restaurants. Why is it so important to, to understand the numbers but also to understand the humans within the business that are influencing the numbers. Because you can't, I mean, you can't separate the two mm. because the humans are influencing the numbers. They, they are ultimately responsible for, for the numbers and the reality on the front lines in a restaurant is often very different than anything the spreadsheet's going to tell you. Mm-hmm. You can model things out all day long and then you walk in the door of a restaurant in 15 minutes, you'll see exactly why your model is totally wrong. So like take us through some of that magic. Like what, like how would he approach? I mean, can you give us some details, some specific things that he taught you that you picked up from observing him? So some of it was, was actually just how to analyze the restaurant business, right? Like the basic stuff that you might take for granted, like check counts, average checks, predicting, you know, how many covers a restaurant would do each week of the year to put together a financial projection. That's, those are the basics, but that's where I learned them. Um, yeah. So getting into those basics, uh, the projections, right? Any key lessons around projecting numbers, uh, specific things that he taught you how to do that even better than maybe your, your average Joe might do it. Anything like that specific granular that you can give us? Yeah, I think looking at trends was a big one. So not just what's the average check, what, what are the guest counts and how are we going to forecast that for like for a year, let's say, and take into account holidays and seasonality and all the things that restaurants always have to look at. But what are the trends telling us? How do we look at trends to better forecast? The, the, the trends within the business or the trends within the industry? Within the business. Okay. What specific so, trends? Give me an example of a trend that you guys picked up on. Um, so within the business, like looking at, you know, is our, our cover counts increasing and decreasing over time because we did something is, is food costs decreasing over time because of something we're, we're doing or, or not doing as opposed to just what's food cost this week, what's food cost next week. 
So you're not just tracking for the sake of knowing the numbers. You're tracking for the sake of looking for trends and then using those trends or making a different or making like a change. And then, okay, with this change, what happens? How does this yeah. influence the numbers? Yep. And how are you managing that? What, what, I mean, maybe back then, this is going back some time. There's a lot of new tools out there now. Maybe we'll, we'll save that for later when we talk about your own business. Uh, any other key mentors, any other key lessons that are worth bringing to the service before we take our first break, then start talking about your journey with Fields Good Chicken? Sure. So, that, so as my journey progresses, two more key mentors. One is Andy Stern, who's the CEO of Orify Brands or the co-CEO. Um, so this was kind of on the on, and now we're getting into the fundraising journey, and then ultimately the today part of the journey. But uh, I met him in the process of trying to get funding to get Fields of Good Chicken off the ground, and for like the six months prior to even funding us, which he ultimately did, he and I had this sort of great back and forth on the brand and the concept and refining it, and you know what this could look like and how would we bring it to life. Um, and so that was almost seven years ago now, and. He and I still, I mean, they're our primary investor. So we're obviously you know, <laughs> working together on a regular basis, but he still serves as a mentor al- along those lines. Like, you know, how is the brand evolving? What, what makes sense? How do we continue to, to nurture this, this into, into a really great business? In what ways did he most impact the brand? Like you had your vision of what the brand could be and how did he influence your vision and make it better? I think in two ways. I mean, one, he's super knowledgeable on the fast casual space specifically because they've been in that space for a long time and that's what they do. So it, it was kind of bringing it to earth, right? Like, what does this look like? What would this actually look like if it was open? How much money would it take to, to, to get it open? How do we do it? Where do we do it? Um, so all of that, having done it before, that was super helpful. I hadn't done it before he had. Um, and then on the brand side of things, you know, he has over the years just pushed me to constantly sort of rethink the brand and to push the brand evolution. Like what, it needs is, to have more personality. It needs okay. to be cooler. What is the, like, what is, what lane are you in? Okay. So basically how do you do that? Like how was he coaching you to, to put that personality? How have you been uh, evolving? Or maybe this was something that we, I think we can talk about this when we start talking about your, your story, I think, because now we're in, in the journey of your, your brand, your field good chicken so let's take our first break we'll thank our sponsors we'll come right back and we'll, we'll kind of start talking about how you made this happen all right let me give you one more okay. last mentor yeah, yeah, quickly yeah, yeah, yeah. i can't not mention this yeah, uh, is my dad who is an entrepreneur himself gotcha. so throughout i think throughout this whole journey um he's been like one of one of the the rocks behind me that i call constantly with like anything and everything that's kind of challenging so he's been on the roller coaster with me all along. It's going to be hard to distill a, one or two things that your dad has taught you, right? But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in what way has he been the biggest significance in your life as far as coaching you in your business? I mean, he's someone to call when I don't have anyone else to call that has has been through something similar before. So sometimes he doesn't have the right answer, but he I at least know that I can vent to someone who's been through it. And sometimes that's enough. And just that process of talking through what's inside of you getting it out, you know, uh, instead of keeping it bottled up and not really working through those thoughts and feelings is so helpful. Uh, but what, yeah. what advice has he given you over the years that turned out to be incredible advice? Um, I'm trying to, I gotta think I'm putting you on the spot. It's, yeah, yeah, you are. Um, I mean, I think one thing he said to me that has stuck with me, it's almost in kind of a, 
it's a very true thing as you're running and leading a business, which is where, uh, where if you see smoke, there's a fucking burnt bonfire burning below, um, which you can interpret a number of ways, but it, it, it means, I mean, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. If you see something <laughs> that is, that catches your attention, inspect it because if it caught your attention, yeah. there's probably something underneath it all that is more, significant than just a little bit of smoke yeah and the context that comes up in is like you know i I'm not, i don't know what to do about this thing something's kind of bugging me this is what i'm hearing and it's it's been sort of that like well if it's if it's on your radar there's there's a reason something's probably wrong or needs attention yeah got you awesome stuff all right so let's take our first break we'll be right back and uh you're doing great man i'm loving the conversation If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions. No more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on prime costs that's awesome head over to restaurant 365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30 percent off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system a value of 5k all right we're back and um so as the story goes you wanted to master chicken right and we, we haven't really gotten into the brand of fields good chicken so why chicken what's the idea take us from that like like the start of like when you knew what you were going to do. So the idea goes all the way back to my bike racing days. Um, and I think the very, like the first sort of moment of the idea was driving from a race, driving from LA to Phoenix for a race and having like nowhere to stop to be able to get healthy food along the way. Like the, the best option at the time was subway. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you're trying to fuel your body for like peak athletic performance. And then you're having to stop and eat subway. And I just, in the back of my mind, I think since that moment was like, there's gotta be a better way to get good food out there. Mm -hmm. So that, that's where it started. And then I think that's, then I went through the whole progression we talked about of, of working at restaurants and, and working in manufacturing and going to business school and getting kind of all the pieces of experience that I needed to, to actually open and run a restaurant, um, and to grow it. And then the idea to do chicken, I think, was a, a light bulb moment that um, I also remember very clearly. I don't know, I, I don't remember what I was doing, but I came home and I talked to, and I I went to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and I was like, I have an idea, chicken, and she's kind of looking at me like, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> and the idea that the idea was pretty simple and still is, which is, we need to be able to scale healthy food. There's a big need for it, and chicken is the most commonly recommended thing to eat by nutritionists uh if you're trying to eat well and like fuel athletic performance or just generally be healthy um along with healthy fresh vegetables and whole grains um but no one was doing healthy chicken 
really like at all. It, it was on menus all over the place, but no one was really giving chicken the attention that it deserved. There's fried chicken everywhere. You can fried chicken anywhere you want, but grilled and roasted chicken is rarely done well. It's usually dry and flavorless. It's usually done no over one, well. <laughs> yeah, no one was yeah. focusing on it. So that was that was actually the the moment yeah. that like it was those two dots that I connected. I think that were probably like seven years apart. And at this time in your life, are you thinking to yourself, do one thing really well? Don't try to be everything to everybody, or or is that just kind of a natural byproduct of? Um, wanting to do chicken really well because i mean what you did is what i would recommend everybody do find one thing find a need and do that one thing really well you know um was that going Mm -hmm. through the back of your mind or did that just happen to i mean this is going back 2010 or 2012 to 2011 when you really starting to this was yeah it was 2012 when i had like when i had the idea and it was 2014 when the doors first opened so yeah, no, that was going through my mind for sure. Do one thing, do it well, do chicken really well and don't worry about anything else. Um, and, and there were people, a lot of people in the restaurant industry that were showing that that was the, the right way to go about things. I mean, at the time, Chipotle and Shake Shack were kind of the two that everyone was watching. Uh, and they were both doing that unbelievably well. Simplicity was key in both of those concepts so this idea is in you while you're at cornell university between 2010 and 2012 i mean you're the seeds planted um yeah and you're i think that's a really uncommon thing is when we're actually in school with an idea and like you know the idea being kind of there kind of influencing our decisions and what we're learning take i think when you have that seed planted while going through the process of educating yourself it it has a bigger impact what do you think oh a hundred percent I mean, because in school, it allowed me, I took that internship at David Burke specifically to get to learn what I needed to know to then be able to graduate and start my own restaurant business. And then I was able to take all my electives in the, in the hotel school again, you know, to learn what I needed to know. So once you graduated, once you got that experience with Burke, what was the, the first thing you did independently on your own to make moves? Take us to that point where you're starting to make moves and make this thing happen. You get your mentor. So first thing I did was write a business plan. Okay. So that's kind of what you're taught, right? First thing you always yeah. do, right? You write the business plan and then you go raise money. Uh, very like easy to say, very hard to do. Yeah. So I wrote the business plan as I'd been taught in business school. And then I started trying to raise money. And that is literally just your networking, right? It just anyone and everyone that might talk to you that might potentially invest and help get the thing off the ground, you talk to. So that takes, I mean, pretty commonly, I think it's a, about a year for most startups of, of just kind of pounding the pavement. So I was in that for a while um, and I had my business plan and I was going around to people and then I finally hit one private equity guy uh, who was really helpful to me. And he, the one comment that he made that like really changed things significantly was this is way too business school, make it sexy and bring it back. We never and hear so that. <laughs> what, this, what's that? Way, this, this business plan is way too polished, right? What was he trying to communicate to you in that moment? It, well, it was, it was like, it was too long and it was just, I, I had written it. It was like a word doc and it was like, I don't know how many pages, but a lot of pages and a lot of words. And so what I ended up after that, I ended up coming back with like a pitch book that was, you know, maybe 10 slides, all pictures in 30 seconds. You could kind of get the idea. And that I think is, was what I needed to do to actually be able to get the thing off the ground, like to get people to be like, Oh, this is, this is cool. This could be something. So you had to get to the point where you could sell the idea, not necessarily 
um, explain all the details, but you had to get somebody to bite. And then when they, when they were on the hook, then you could slide them the more detail. Like, okay, well here are the details, but he was basically trying to say like, you need to work on your, your elevator pitch. Yeah. You got to pitch it. Yep. Got you. So how much money did you need to raise? Um, I think startup was somewhere around a million bucks or so. Okay. And it took you a year to do that. A little bit more. What's that? And you said it took you a year to do that. Took me about a year. I mean, I think, yeah. So you had you had one major investor, right? Yep, that was ultimately where we landed. So it was Orify Brands, who ended up being the the major investor that that got it off the ground. What was it about your relationship with Orify Brands that, um, w- what did they see in you? What, what did that conversation? Why what, did they ever tell you why they they thought that it was a good investment? I think they were excited about the the chicken space and about the fact that this thing didn't exist. So they are all about like creating these fast casual concepts that that don't exist and creating cool, relevant brands that can scale. And they didn't have a chicken concept in their portfolio. And I think they saw the white space and that no one really has a chicken concept like this. So they were excited about that from the get go. And then it was a matter of just refining it until it got to the point where it was something we could actually do. What else does Orified Brands bring to the table other than just capital? What other roles do they play? Um, operating knowledge. I mean, so they actually do some of... First, they actually perform some of our back office functions. Like they do finance, accounting, HR, purchasing, uh, in addition to being investors. So that helps pretty significantly. Um, and then and then they bring the experience of having been in the, in the multi-unit restaurant business for a long time. They started out in with Subway and Dunkin' Donuts and then got a five guys franchise. So they kind of understand how these like bigger multi-unit operations run. And then they use that knowledge now to create and launch original concepts. I love that approach. Uh, I see it all the time in interviews, people who are interested, who have an idea, um, but don't know how the, the, the restaurant industry works. So they, instead of going, the the route that I think a lot of people think they need to go the independent sector they go into the franchise world to to learn the systems processes procedures that that tight knit um way of scaling right and they implement that in their small business from day one um and it's, this is Orified Brands you said that's the name of the group yes. I didn't even know they're yep. part of this that's interesting um yeah so just what were the things that you think you've done well like if you could highlight that the in your journey what you've done the the things that it are within you that you think you can share with us that will leave the biggest impact on my listeners. What like take us through like just that snapshot of like what you did, right? Um, Number one is food quality. Honestly, it sounds simple and, and like obvious, but it has been something that I've just like obsessed over and driven towards uh, so hard. And I think it, it comes down to that at the end of the day, like the quality of your food is really what matters above everything else. Uh, if you don't have good food, nothing else matters, you know? Well, that's part so, of the story, you know, what's that? and that's part of your brand. That's part of your story. But when, when, it, when it's legitimate and you are putting that energy into uh, the quality and it's kind of just like right now what's going on with the COVID-19, right? Uh, we're putting all this energy into showing people that we care about your safety, right? Like we're wearing the mask. We're putting the gloves on. We're putting the tape down. We're opening the door. So you don't have to touch the door. Um, all those things show you care. Your actions show you care. So, when you put that energy into quality chicken to sourcing, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure you source your chicken from ethical, uh, growers, right? Um, yeah, like all these little things show that you care and that's part of your brand that that it pays in tenfold, uh, dissect that a little more. 
So, so that's, that's on the, that's sort of the next thing I think we've done really well, which is, is thinking about the brand and how this whole thing is sort of packaged and communicated to our guests and, and what matters from a value standpoint. Um, back to the food quality thing though, for a minute, just thinking about your listeners, it's easy to say that it's, it, but it's, it's also very easy as you get open and start having to make business decisions to stray from food quality. There's so many obstacles and so many curveballs that will come your way um, that can derail the mission of serving really good quality food that it, it really takes like focus and consistency and obsession to, to make it happen. And like those, like everything from like, you know, people changing, you have, you have someone that's great at executing recipe and they quit. Now, now what you have to retrain someone on that recipe and it was complicated and it might not come out the same way. Um, there's pressure from, investors or from the market to improve margins do you compromise on ingredient quality or portions or you know there's just so many it's kind of like everything i feel like goes against food quality in the restaurant business so it, it takes just crazy drive yeah so what are the things we can do to protect ourselves from that that shift or that that um you know, getting off center line, the drifting, that's the word I was looking for. So the, like, you have your, your, your standard and food quality. How did you, what things can we put into our business to, to anchor that standard? So it does not drift into the direction of less quality or lower quality. How do we, how do we protect ourselves? So for us, it's been values like establishing core values and uh, really what the, what the brand believes in and is all about from the beginning has been really important. I think that's kind of where you're going with the next part of this, but um, you know, there's things we just won't compromise on like the quality of the chicken. You know, like there have been a lot of opportunities to save a lot of money by going to a lower quality chicken. That's not, you know, humanely raised uh, and we just won't do it. Mm -hmm. So, and that's because we've, we've just said from the beginning, this is, this is what our standard is as a company. This is why we exist. These are our values. Uh, This is where we won't compromise. So that kind of keeps you on the straight and, straight and narrow. Yeah. And you know, values are just so important. Not only do they keep you, uh, uh, what's the word? Not only does it keep you, um, faithful, right. To the, to the mission, but it also helps with that decision-making like, Oh, there's this the decision I have to make. Should I go with this? Should I go with that? Well, what do the core values say? Don't settle Like don't, don't budge. Like have these, like this is one of our core values quality. Right. And it just mm-hmm. makes those decisions so much easier to make. Cause you have something that's written down that kind of puts you right back on path and you can point to it. You can point to it to, to your investor saying, no, like this is who we are. Right. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned something else that I think is really significant too, is how do you package that? Because you're doing all these things. You have all these core values. Values are expensive. Uh, so how are you packaging those values to communicate why it's more expensive and how are you developing that brand? Um, so we are, it's actually a good question. We're still, we're still working on that. I mean, that we're still trying to try and figure out how to best communicate, you know, why this is better and different and worth something more than just like the everyday product out there. Um, but, you know, we try and hang our hat on like a couple very straightforward things, which is like where, where a chicken comes from. It's always antibiotic free and humanely raised. And that's, you know, something we communicate a lot. Um, and then the other, the other place where our values are, I think actually honestly most important are with our people. So that's the other, I, I started out by talking about food. That's, that's your product, right? That's the center of 
of the plate. And if that's not good, like you might as well go home. But people are just as important in the equation. If you don't have good people that are motivated and happy, you're never going to execute that good quality food that I was talking about initially. So our core values really revolve around culture and people and putting people first. So how are you attracting onto yourself these people? What things are you doing in your business to be more appealing? Um, I mean, so aside from the basics, which is, you know, pay and benefits, uh, I try really hard to create an environment where, where people are happy and, and are, we're constantly working towards, uh, creating a place that people like to work. Um, what's that look like? What, what, what environment does paint that picture of an, an environment where people like to work? Uh, so I think there's a number of facets to it, right? Like it actually starts with your operation. And this is something that we're like, I think is a constant effort to improve, but how difficult is it for them to do their job when they show up? Like, are there five hurdles to just like doing their job clock successfully? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. can they clock in correctly? And then do they know how to bring something up in the POS and is the equipment working um, or not? You know, if, if they show up every day knowing like, oh man, like Belvin might be broken today. Again, you're already kind of showing up with a negative mindset. And that's something I think I've learned over the years. We weren't very good at it in the beginning and we still have a lot of opportunity. There's still days where like, I just, it kills me because our restaurants aren't running properly. And I know that our teams are having to deal with that, but having that commitment to we'll do everything we can to create the, the best environment that we can for you to work in. I think is where it starts. Yeah. It's giving your um, team the tools they need to be successful. And early yeah. on, that's not easy because you're not, I mean, you might not have the cash flow. You might not be, you know, liquid enough to, to put out fires when they, they come up, you know, you might have to let them burn a little bit until you can figure out the best strategy for putting that out, which means your team might not have all the tools they need. Um, but it's that constant gentle pressure of always trying to be better. Like you said, like we're still working on it to this day. You just said, you know, and in, yep. in, it, there's always going to be new things that emerge that you're going to have to work on. Right. Always. So um, I'm curious when it comes to uh, your brand, right? You said well, a lot of what you've been doing is trying to communicate what your brand is. How has your brand served you in attracting on the right people, not just customers, but employees? Um, so I think so with, with the brand, we've tried really hard to create something that is fun and playful and approachable, but communicates, you know, healthy food um, without taking that health aspect too seriously. So it's evolved a lot over the, over the years. Um, a lot of the inspiration comes from the like ski towns that I was living in and cooking in years ago, which is kind of like that sort of bright colors, some neons here and there, lightning bolts and, and uh, a little bit of fun um, and sort of a little bit of a retro vibe as well. So I think from a brand standpoint, what that communicates is like, this is a, a like upbeat, happy, doesn't take itself too seriously kind of place, um, which is what I think the world kind of needs right now really right now with this whole yeah. pandemic, but in general, you know, I think the food world was taking itself way too seriously over the, particularly over the last few years. Well, when I look at your brand, I, I can't help but be curious if your brand is just an extension of who you are. Um, being somebody passionate about, uh, you know, obviously health and fitness, but also the, the wild adventure 
you know, like the bike racer, the, the skier, the, or the snowboarder, whatever it was you're doing, but the, the nature, you know, um, it's kind of like that masculine, like you see all these like health focused, uh, concepts out there that are very much geared towards women, very feminine colors, very soft. Right. But then you take Mm -hmm. the same thing and it seems like, I mean, well, there's also men out there that want to be healthy and, and it almost looks like the brain's geared towards men. Is that weird to say? No, it's funny. It is, but it wasn't, but not intentionally. It just kind of happened. Well, you're uh, a man, and, and, and now it, yeah, and it's an extension of restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> there, then you look at who's in the restaurant. It tends to be mostly men. And as we start to, to understand who our customers are, we've learned that it it does skew pretty heavily, male versus female. Um, but that was never like never intentional. That was not something that we wrote down. We're like we're going to target men. It just happened, and I think it's for the reason you just said, which is the brand has evolved very organically and kind of slowly over time because it's been an extension of me. And it's been like little details here and there. Um, as I get like, honestly, more comfortable expressing myself through the brand. And it has, I think maybe for that reason, it's resonated more strongly with men than women, but yeah, you're onto something there. We, we haven't quite figured it out. Well, I think it's a good thing because you know, it's, it, there's a lot of those, you know, the, the bowls, right. The, the salads and bowls and like, you know, the past five years, it's been a very, uh, fast moving segment within the industry, but I don't see a lot of people focusing on the masculine aspect. The, 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 uh, almost all those brands focus on femininity or fem- femininity, mm-hmm. feminine, you know what I'm trying to say? Um, <laughs> yeah. so, but it, that wasn't intentional. You're saying that's just natural. But I think when it's not intentional, when it's organic, it's almost always better. That's so when it comes to building a brand, I think organic is by far the best way to build a brand. I, I think of brands as as very much like people and they kind of have to go through that, like the same development that a person goes through where you get the business off the ground and it's like a newborn and it's got no personality whatsoever. And then it kind of you know becomes a, an infant and then a toddler and then a teenager and it starts talking back and it's got a little bit of attitude, but that doesn't happen overnight. When you try to force that, I think it comes across as very like hollow and kind of fake. Yeah. You know, a lot of brands have been created in boardrooms purely just to sell a product, and it works. But it's not the way you create something that lasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think this is really important. I'm happy that this came up organically in today's conversation. Is that I think when people are trying to de- define their brand, their concept, and, and what they want to be, they just they don't really have that clarity, and they get stressed out because oh, like I don't have all these things written down yet, but it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it's good to have a general direction, an idea, but it's that, that mentality that you've implant, you've implemented that it's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. You don't need to have it all done. You just need to have good enough right now to get started. Right. And good right. enough. Uh, you know, you don't want to settle on good enough. Um, but good enough is enough to start. And then, you know, have a general direction, you know, and then slowly start to narrow that direction as you go forward. I mean, if you're, if you're heading to the North Pole, just start going north. You don't have to be at 360 degrees, you know, like yes. you can be at 340 degrees or 30 degrees. You're going to get closer. You don't have to have it honed in on day one, I think is the, the big thing to communicate here. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think you have to be comfortable with allowing it to evolve naturally. Like thinking about it, even just restaurants, like you need to kind of decorate them as if you were decorating your home in order to have that real personal vibe. Um, and that takes time. You know, you move into a new home or new apartment doesn't feel like home on day one. You know, it takes, I think it takes probably like a year for a new home to really feel like yeah. your house mm-hmm. or your the other way around your house to feel like your home. 
Um, and I think it's the same way with businesses, with restaurants, like you kind of, you have to keep adding those layers that start to amount to something that has its own soul. Yeah. Field, I've loved this conversation. Uh, we still got to leave time to talk about uh, how you're handling COVID-19, uh, but I want to kind of open up the conversation right now to ask you if there's anything we have not discussed up to this point, uh, any areas of expertise, things that you were hoping we would discuss that you do really well. Now is the time to get it out. I guess in terms of what we do well, I would say, I think a focus on people is something that we do well and are, and are super committed to. I think there's like for your listeners, a couple resources that I've found that I would love to get out there um, as we kind of continue. Are they, how we're are they books in, in a, are they books and technology? They're books. Yeah. Okay. I'll have an opportunity for you to, okay. to share those later on. Uh, yeah. Let's, uh, so the other thing is let's, should you want to talk about, um, about how we're handling COVID? Yeah, man. Um, or, so just to kind of add some context here, um, I, there's a period where I, I wasn't sure how long I was going to go without publishing uh, these traditional restaurant unstoppable core content. Cause I just didn't think the, the industry was ready to hear these types of conversations. Mm-hmm. They're too consumed with what do I do right now? Um, so I pivoted restaurant unstoppable to focus on COVID-19 for about 40 episodes. Um, now I feel like, you know, there's a, a hunger for people to kind of get some sense of normalcy back in their life. Like I just want to listen to success stories. I just want to, get content that will help me rebuild, right? And give me that motivation to, to revision, to come back stronger. So that's why we're here to talk about this. But you know, this thing is still very real. COVID-19 is still very real. Um, I think that we should spend some time during these deep dive conversations to reflect on how you've been handling it and what, what you're doing in your business right now to survive this thing, keep our fingers crossed. So what do you have for us? What have you been doing? How are, how are you handling it? So so the where I was going with that, the reason I was asking is, is let's take a positive, I guess, approach to this uh, and forward looking. Um, so we launched in the middle of this, we launched this campaign called Birds for Good, which was our, our way of supporting hospital workers. And um, I have to give my team a lot of credit in, in like launching this super quickly because we were one of the first restaurants to do it. Now, now if you look across the industry, like every, everyone's got a hospital donation program if they're open. We, we did this back when we were, I think, maybe one of the first like two. Um, and this is something that I now looking forward, see as, as part of our model. Like this is a social responsibility initiative that I don't think goes away. It might expand beyond hospital workers, but to use our platform and restaurants as a way to support the community and to feed people who need good food is something I think is like really motivating, really exciting, uh, and really positive to come out of all of this. Um, and it's got our team super jazzed. Um, so that's, yeah, rather than talking about like, what are we doing about COVID? This is what's coming out of it that I think we're all super psyched about. So I think you make a good point. I do think that uh, this industry, the, the, the landscapes, the landscapes going to change, um, whether it's more delivery, more eating from home, more curbside pickup, more restaurants having that option, right? A lot of people are also diversifying their offerings, doing more family meal type takeout. And I don't think that's necessarily going to go away at the end of this. I think they're going to be like, wow, this actually worked. And we, we have this element of our business. We might as well keep that as an option for maybe catering or something along those lines. And now we have the the infrastructure and the framework. But beyond that, what you're alluding to is the values are starting to change. Mm -hmm. And and it's going to be the, the restaurants that survive this thing that have been very focused on those relationships on doing what's right for everybody else, not necessarily themselves. And that that's going to, that's going to thin the, the herd. And I think it's a good thing. 
Um, do you want to compound more off that? Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I totally agree. I think this is really going to shape the industry towards more value-driven, more mission-driven businesses, which, which we've been all along. And I think that's part of why we were so quick on this one. Um, you know, as, as I said earlier, our first core value is make a positive impact. And we've done that through, it started with, with sustainability initiatives and being 1% for the planet member and donating money to scenic Hudson to preserve the, the Hudson river Valley from New York to Poughkeepsie. Um, every November we do a fundraiser for coalition for the homeless camp homeward bound. And so it's kind of been in the fabric of how we operate to have this give back component. And then right as, as the whole COVID pandemic was happening, it was all right, now let's shift to hospitals, the, the frontline workers who are really the heroes here. Um, but it has really rallied the team, I think, around that. And I think uh, other businesses are starting to see that. And I think consumers are even more tuned into that now, yeah. too, which is like, it, there's a real human crisis here and everyone needs yeah. to chip in. And if you're a business and you're not chipping in, you're part of the problem. And there is a byproduct of giving your people something to, like purpose. The, there, you know, there is like when, when the world is crumbling around us, but you give your team purpose. Our purpose is to make sure that these frontline workers are getting what they need to serve. Now that you know the world can be crumbling around you, but if you have purpose, if you have meaning, if you feel like you're of value, that you're contributing, that's going to do incredible things for your culture. Um, and maybe that wasn't intentional, but it's just the thing is when you do good, like doing good is good business. Yeah, it, it echoes. Yeah, and it is. It really does give people a rally cry, myself included. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been. It's kind of been what we needed, what we've needed throughout the last like couple of months is is something to focus on that makes us all feel good in a time when the world's making us feel bad. So yeah, yeah, it absolutely does kind of recenter you on why why we exist. So I'm I'm curious. We're now over a month into this thing, right? Um, from when it really started to really shake our industry, is the the panic kind of settling down for you guys? Is is there still the need for you to to be there for hospital workers, or has has that kind of stabilized? Um, I think to a certain degree it's stabilized. I think the need is actually shifting and we're, we're actually starting to talk about that right now, which is the need is shifting from hospital workers to food banks and, you know, people are having a hard time putting food on their table. Like there's a, yes. a really serious problem developing there where there already was a problem. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the next thought is, okay, is this where we need to shift to be able to, you know, to best support our community. So now we're shifting from first line responders to, okay, a month later, who's been affected by this? Who, who lost their jobs? What kids who already had it hard or have it even more difficult now because the small paycheck that their parents were getting is now completely gone. Yep. Uh, and how can we be there for that's where you're shifting your focus. That's where we're starting to, to look. Yeah. We're starting to look, where's the need? Where can we help? How can we, how can and, we help the community? And what advice, where should we be looking to be of service? How can we be of significance to our communities right now? What, what would you advise us to do or where, where to look? So I would look at either, there's, I think, two ways to help support the community. One is who needs food, who can't access it? Can we support food banks or other service initiatives to get meals to people that are hungry? Um, and then can we serve our community by by selling healthy food to, to residents in our neighborhoods. That's something that's like actually almost overlooked here, which is there's millions I'm of so people in New York city here. that have to eat every day. And if, if everyone just react in the industry, just reacted to this pandemic by closing restaurants and grocery stores, the city would starve. So there's a very basic need, which is 
nourishing people, which I think has been, this has been a great reminder that like of how important restaurants are. And this is something I want. Maybe you can help me with this. Being somebody who's um, health focused, food focused, uh, I do think that there's going to be an oppor- an entrepreneurial opportunity here um, because not only do we need good food, but there's sp- specific food, specific things that we can eat that aren't just healthy, but also help build our immune system um, that I think that you're going to see if this thing continues to spiral out of control, you're going to see people be very intentional with what they're eating. And I think that this is an opportunity for chefs to step up and to start putting out diets. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not really strong in this vertical, but I want to learn more of putting together specific diets that are designed to boost your immune system. Um, is that something that you guys have been considering? How can we not just provide sustenance, but specific sustenance to use food as medicine during this time? Um, it's something that we, so not, not as specifically as that, meaning like we're, we're not, we haven't talked about creating like the, the immunity menu per se. Um, but we've been very focused on, on creating health food that people want to eat um, so that they eat it every day. That's been actually kind of like the core tenet of our whole menu all along is, is food that tastes good enough that you want to eat it every day, but is healthy enough that it would, you would actually be healthy from eating it as opposed to promoting this sort of like up and down, like, I just ate steamed vegetables for two days and now I have to down a whole pizza and a pint of ice cream to get some, you know, to feel good. Uh, I think that's part of the approach that will happen here, which is a, a, just a baseline healthy diet. I think if you, if you talk to your doctor, they're going to tell you that more so than like go start downing tons of vitamin C uh, and taking supplements. They're going to say you need to generally eat healthier and exercise to reduce comorbidities and diabetes and and the things that really make this this disease I think, more dangerous. Yeah, that's another another byproduct of this disease. I think people who were on who were on that 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 line of unhealthy, um, maybe in their like thirties or forties. So we're seeing that this this virus is affecting people who are like middle midlife, right? That or maybe healthy, but could be a little bit healthier. And I'll be honest, I'm one, I'm 34 years old and I saw things that, you know, people in our age group were um, being affected by this thing. And it makes me think I'm like, shit, like I'm a little overweight. Like I'm, I'm not like, or I mean, I try to ride my bike 20 to 30 miles a day, but still I'm like, I, I like to eat good and I like to smoke a little weed. Maybe that's, <laughs> me too. you know, like who knows? Maybe my lungs aren't strong right now. So um, it makes people think about being more, it, it really like when, when there's a, ch- when there's a threat, it forces people to start thinking more, more safely, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry I think I went it, on a little tear there, but no, it's, I think it's going to change how we're <laughs> thinking in a number of ways. Um, I think maybe the, the like trend in the industry actually, or in the, in the food world shifts back towards just the balanced, healthy lifestyle, which is like eating healthy most of the time, exercising and trying to maintain a, a balanced, healthy lifestyle. It had gotten, I think, mo- previously more focused on like very specific restrictive trends. Like it started with, with gluten-free and there was very good reasons why that was super important. But then that mushroomed beyond the the medical aspect of it to like a a diet essentially. And then we've seen the trend continue that kind of settle down to a very healthy norm, I think where there's much more awareness around it. And then plant-based vegan vegetarian has taken on, you know, sort of a life of its own to the point where um, people are almost more focused on the restrictive side of it, as opposed to the healthy, positive side of it. Um, 
And then if you look at every diet trend out there right now, they're mostly restrictive. Here are the things you can't eat. This is the, this diet and you can't like, you can't eat all these things. Um, that's kind of how yeah. we look at, at eating right now. Um, I think as we get through this, the world should recenter a little bit more on, on what we can't, what we can eat. Um, and what, what it means to eat a balanced lifestyle as opposed to like your diet being something you wear on your sleeve, like a fashion label. It, it's, I think yeah, it's kind of crazy, our relationship with food, honestly, over the last few years. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Uh, maybe we can get you back to talk about that. There's a lot to unpackage in that conversation. <laughs> I could go on all day but about I, that. Yeah, I, but I am <laughs> curious, before we kind of transition to the speed round, um, regarding operations during this time, what things have you done within your business operationally to um, maybe last six more months at this level, operating at this level? Because that's a real you know possibility. It might be until you know fall of 2020 or even 2021 yeah so what what's your plan to to survive this sucker so um so we launched our which you mentioned earlier family meals we launched those back in march we were actually working on those before this all happened so that that just accelerated this um so the family meal program uh and then Delivery is the other, like, I think obvious big one, which is we're going to see much, much more delivery and a lot less in-store dining. Um, I think we happen to be positioned pretty well because we serve a great dinner product. Uh, this is actually something we've been trying to figure out how to sell more of because roasted chicken and vegetables chicken, is like the right? perfect yeah. dinner plate. And yet we've yeah. done a lot of lunch business over the years. So our focus is like, let's double down on dinner and delivery and get delicious, healthy chicken dinners to people in the community. Yeah. What about um, operationally? Have you adopted any new technology or best practices to increase your uh, ability to do pickup and delivery more efficiently? Um, not yet, I think is the short answer in terms of operations. We're, we actually just were talking about this yesterday. How do we, you know, in terms of focusing our operations on what we need to do to be able to do more delivery, more dinner. We're really focusing on on dinner right now. So we just talked about like, how do we staff the restaurants at night? How do we handle the delivery volume? What kind of technology, what kind of, of systems do we need to be able to do that? Um, most of the operations and up until this point has been really on like safety and sanitation. So really every day it's, it's been, how do we, how do we run the safest restaurants possible? And now I we're, I think we're, I remind we're, everybody, we're doing the you're, right thing. You're in New really York city, dude. Sorry to talk over you, but you're in New York City. I just need to put the emphasis on that. You're in the like you're in like the fucking danger zone. Like you're in you're in it. You know, like I don't think there's any place within the country that has it as bad as New York City right now. You guys are stacked on top of each other. Yeah, like, like social distancing is kind of like a a joke. Yeah. in New York City. Like, <laughs> and you know, so um, I just want to point that out that like. So this is why you're putting so much emphasis on what you're doing to communicate to people. We're safe. We're clean. Like you yes. can not worry about coming in here and you have to put it front and center. Yes. I mean, we, we were operating restaurants in the like epicenter of this thing, which was just a, it, it's been a wild month, month and a half here. Um, and so yeah, safety and sanitation has been just like all, like that's all we've talked about for the last month and a half internally. It's been, you know, People and safety. That's it. Beautiful. That's it. So um, what do you think the future looks like as far as um, what can we be doing to what, what what's your plan? Of, you already mentioned the you're going to be doing more shifting towards dinner, right? To focus on that market. Um, any outlooks for the future? Anything that is worth sharing as far as what what 
we can, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out my questions around this because it's still so new. Um, just you, you're picking up what I'm putting down. Like what's your outlook for this thing look like? Um, so we're actually, so what we're, what I think you're getting at is, is, is really like, what is the new normal as we've been calling it? Yeah. Like what yeah. does the world is not going to go back to what it was before. So we're trying to think of like, what does our business, what does our industry look like in six months? Um, and what is like, how do you paint that picture? It, it very much, I think, is a new, a new normal. Um, and it's everything from much more delivery business, much more technology focused. I think contactless payment stays, which means much higher reliance on, on digital and mobile apps than, than before. And that was already a growing trend. Um, I think the sanitation standards are with us to stay. So I think, like, I think our customers and government regulators are going to be much more heavily focused on, on those kinds of standards than before. I think like we literally going to see sort of similar to what the airline industry went through post September 11th, where like TSA wasn't really a thing before. And now it's something we're comfortable with. Um, yeah. Like I think contactless payment, social distancing, all of that are here to stay in some level. Yeah. And I think it's important that people recognize that um, this thing could have waves. So I think that if, if, if you didn't have a, a plan in place, for a devastator for a disaster like this um when there's a sign of it happening again what can what can you do to be ahead of it next time and next time is a real possibility like within the year possibility mm-hmm. you know because they're saying well you know it might lighten up during the summer when everybody gets outside but when we start to hunker back down again come october november this thing could flare up again so being ready for that is another real serious conversation i think yes and i think the way that we have to think about it is we can't go back to the way we were before until there's a vaccine. So I think all the measures we've put in place, the way we're operating right now, I think that this is how we have to continue operating until there's a vaccine and herd immunity, which sounds like it could be next spring or beyond. So we're, I think we're kind of, this is our, this current state is our normal for the foreseeable future. (laughs) I don't like it (laughs) from from an operation standpoint, like, you know, at least least have that mentality. Hopefully that's not the case, but you know, plan for worst case scenario is what I'm hearing from you. Um, yeah, I think from a business standpoint, you you have to plan for worst case scenario through this. Yeah, field. I've loved this this conversation. Um, unless there's anything else you want to get out that we have not shared yet, now's the time to get it out. And we're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors one more time and uh, bust out a quick speed round. All right, sounds good. All right, you've been awesome. One more quick break. So. Let's get real. Grease is a fact of life in any commercial kitchen. But with the grease-fighting power of Dom Professional Manual Pot and Pan from P&G Professional, you'll clean more dishes in every sink compared to leading private label. Dom Professional has the power you need to fight tough grease and get those squeaky clean dishes you're looking for. With long-lasting suds that clean up to 58% more dishes per sink and reduce sink changeovers by 35%, saving up to 6,000 gallons of hot water per year versus private label, it's no wonder Dom Professional is the number one dish detergent in the U.S. P&G Professional's complete restaurant cleaning program includes products, equipment, and 24-7 service to deliver a noticeable clean that will keep your patrons coming back time and time again. To learn more, go to www.pgpro.com and experience the grease-fighting power of Dom Professional dishwashing liquid. You can find Dom Professional at Sam's Club or by visiting samsclub.com slash Professional. Now go get it. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it 
a factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? So I would say uh, attention to detail and then being mission-driven and putting people first. Beautiful. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, obsessing over details to the point where I latch onto the negative before the positive. Something I have to constantly remind myself. What's one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team, when you're, when you're developing that, uh, that team? So I always, I, I always look for ambition and drive in addition to everything else. Um, and I always ask people where, where they see themselves in five years. How do you know, like what questions are you asking to see if they have ambition and drive? So I, if I ask someone, where, have you, where do you see yourself in five years? I'm just looking for somewhere that's not where you are today. I don't care if it's mm. in a totally different industry, doing a totally different thing. It's just, I want to know that this person is thinking ahead and wants to grow because we're growing as a company. So I need people that want to grow with us. What is your biggest challenge today that's not COVID-19? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, uh, figuring out the new normal for, uh, for COVID-19. Yeah. But I would say otherwise... Um, Operational execution, I think, is the biggest is the biggest challenge. Just making sure that, that the food is right all of the time. Uh, Share one code of conduct or core value you teach your team. This is a way to be, a way to act. Be kind. Yes. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common throughout your your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry. A way to go above and beyond. So I always, I teach the basics of hospitality with three pillars. Um, I always say friendly, start friendly greeting, make the guests feel more comfortable and a friendly farewell. Those are, and I, I teach them to everyone in the company and I teach them through the lens of when you have your friends over at your house, what do you do? And everyone is able to nail those three things without having ever heard them before. Cause it's like very innate human nature. Yes, so you can it. go on and on about hospitality, but that's the like natural human side of it. Beautiful. And what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? So to be a better restaurant owner, I would say good job strategy is one that I'm super psyched on right now. And then better person chasing excellence by Ben Bergeron, which is where my quote came from at the beginning. Share one um, lesson you learned from the first book you mentioned, excuse me, the first, the first book you mentioned, actually, I'm just going to say that over because I burped and hiccup in the middle of the question. What's, <laughs> What's one lesson that you've learned from um, that first book you mentioned? So one lesson I've learned from, from good job strategy is, is how to source ideas from the front lines. So the whole crux of how to do that is, is, is workshopping with your managers, with your frontline employees, and letting the best ideas come from the people that are, are actually living it every day. Beautiful. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Use technology. I think the industry is like at least 10 years behind every other industry in that regard. And we have a question uh, coming up that will help us kind of dissect that a little bit more. Uh, Name one service you've hired. So this is not a technology, but more a person that you've went to for expertise, whether that's like interior design, architecture, marketing, somebody that we should have in our network. So we used... Uh, we use a company called Hungry Studio to do our branding and design and creative direction. Uh, we started working with them like two years ago. They're a small, small shop and they're awesome. Like great people love working with them and they've done just awesome work for us. Hungry Studio. Yes. Look out, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm going to 
you're going to be getting some uh, calls in the next couple of days there. <laughs> uh, and what is one technology you've adopted within your restaurants that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Uh, we recently implemented something called Mies, which is a new software startup uh, created by a friend of ours that um, is a recipe management and culinary operations management software. So all of our recipes are on iPads in our kitchens and can be updated centrally. Batches can be scaled from the iPad. Uh, and it's it's gone a long way towards recipe accuracy and being able to update multiple restaurants all at once. It's pretty cool. Beautiful. And uh, what was that called? Mies? Like Mies and Plus? Mies? Called Mies, like Mies and Plus, but it's spelled M-E-E-Z. M-E-E-Z. Beautiful. Thank you. And any other technologies you wanted to share before we move on to the next question? Uh, this is a big no, area for you. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, this is the last question, and it's a doozy, so get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you and your restaurants will be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good, the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? So the first, this is a doozy. <laughs> yeah, uh, you write a book on this one. Um, so first one would, would be uh, that family is the most important thing. Um, to value family above, above all else. It's easy. One. Yes. One. Uh, the second one would be um, to treat each other with kindness and put people first and, and try to think how you can help others. Um, there's a quote going around that I, that I love, which is we're all, we're not passengers. We're all, we're crew on planet earth. Um Yes. And then number three, uh, and then number three, um, would be to take risks, to not be afraid to follow your passion, um, and take risks and embrace failure, which sounds pretty cliche, but people need, need to be reminded to that. I have to be reminded to that. I've made a lot of, silly decisions in my life <laughs> field. I've loved this conversation, man. I really have. You've been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's somebody you respect and admire in this industry and believe would make great guest mentors like you made for us today. So I've got, I, I'm going to give you two that you have to uh, connect. That I think it'd be awesome. Spencer Rubin from Melchop and Becky Mulligan from the little beat. Spencer and Becky, look out. I'm coming after you guys. I'd love to get you on the show. And how can we connect with you if um, we want to learn more about maybe some of your the, the your practices and your best practices, or maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe uh, we've been inspired by your story and we want to come learn from you. What's the best way to connect? Um, best way to connect. So you can, I mean, if you, if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram at field failing and uh, otherwise I, this, I'd love to plug our website, go to fieldsgochicken.com and donate some money for Birds for Good uh, to support hospital workers in New York City right now. Beautiful. Absolutely. We'll have that link uh, in the show notes. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 709. And we'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as a link to any tool, service, or book recommended. And again, I would not be able to do what I do without people like you uh, being so generous with their time and knowledge. So thank you so much, Field. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. It's been fun. My pleasure. Cheers. 
There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurants Unstoppable Field Failing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. There was tons of great value that came from it. I think the the things that kind of stood out to me is this idea of when we're building the, the vision for our business, when we, if we're those attention to detail type of people and we're trying to just dream and dream and dream, we put all that dream into a business plan. It can be so detailed. It can be so overwhelming, which is good that we go to that amount and we go to that extreme to get that detail. But keep in mind when you're pitching this to people, they don't want to be overwhelmed. They want a, a, a taste of what your vision is. So work on that elevator pitch, get it down. It's so important. I love this idea of branding and letting it be an extension of who you are. That also came out of today's conversation. And I feel like a lot of people feel the stress of, of getting your brand down, of getting the, the, the voice, the tone, the, the essence of your brand and the truth of the matter is I feel like that that sort of thing comes with time that comes with that's an evolution that we grow into and I think it should be an organic extension of our values and I, I feel like it's it's it can be overwhelming at first to have super clarity on all that stuff. Um, sometimes it comes easier for certain people, but don't be overwhelmed. Don't be hard on yourself. If you haven't quite distilled the essence of your brand, I think just co- constantly working on it, constantly trying to find the words to communicate who you are over time, that brand will come. And then I love this manufacturer's mindset, uh, taking the manu- the manufacturer mindset and looking at your business like a manufacturer would uh, systems, processes, procedures, all these things. And it really, what we're trying to do is we're, 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 we are manufacturing things. We're manufacturing food. We're manufacturing experiences. And, it, but, but taking that perspective of a manufacturer can be so, so powerful. Uh, really great stuff that came out of today's chat. So before I let you guys go, I want to remind you that this episode was recorded with video. So you can head over to YouTube, search Restaurant Unstoppable, and subscribe today. If you want to come into these conversations and be there with us, do that. Also, head over to Facebook and search Unstoppable Restaurant Owners and Operators and join our private Facebook group. That's where I'm really keeping my ear to the ground and and finding out what you guys want me to do and how I can best serve you. So go, go join the community. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.